Welcome to the Set Yourself Free podcast, real stories from ending emotional abuse and trauma and taking back your life. I'm your host, Carrie Veach, owner of Set Yourself Free. I'm a life and success coach that believes we all have limitless potential within ourselves if we have the right tools and support. Trauma or past hurt might be a part of your story, but it doesn't have to be the whole story. We all have different versions of what freedom means, and I'm here to help you uncover your perfect version of how to set yourself free. Join us for season one, where we follow five extremely brave women through their journey of setting themselves free. Through their stories, you will know that you are not alone that it does get better on the other side and learn practical ways that you too can set yourself free. Let's dive in. When did you have your first realization that something was really wrong? Renee? Yeah, um, I guess when, so I had missed, so in law school, it's very, you have the same classes with the same group of people. Um, so people will notice if you, you know, miss a class or, um, anything like that. It's very competitive. Um, it's just a pretty competitive atmosphere. So I was someone who was very like, you know, sitting in like the first or second row of class and like, you know, answering questions and being a nerd. (laughs) And (laughs) all of a sudden I'm just not showing up to class. And people are like, what's my study group is like, what's happening? What's wrong? Mm -hmm. And, um, I just, it just wasn't motivating me. I just could not do it anymore. And I remember talking to a friend of mine at the time and she's like, well, why don't you go to the Dean of Students and see like, you know, if you have to drop out or if you can drop the class or whatever. Um, and that's when I started noticing that stuff was wrong. I just did not, I was just opting out of life. I just did not want to get out of bed in the morning. I, I think that first week when I didn't go to class, it, that's when I realized it was, this is, I've never been able to not achieve, achieve really. Like just not going to class was a big, was, I know it sounds probably not like a big deal, but it was such a huge deal to me. And not just for a day, like for a week, like I didn't go to any class at all. It was like, I might as well have dropped out of school. Um, and I think I just could, just not being able to get out of bed for the first mm-hmm. time. Um, and I'm sure I've felt those feelings before, but for me, like opting out and saying, you know what, <laughs> I'm just, this whole week, I'm just going to stay in bed and, and that's it. And even I think past that, um, trying, like I was trying to get better and trying to, um, force myself to go to class or whatever. Um, things just, I thought that I'd feel better. Like once I start, started working again, once I started getting into my homework or whatever, my reading, and nothing, nothing was making me feel better. I was seeing a guy at the time and hanging out with him. Like that wasn't making me feel better. There was literally nothing that could change what was happening in my inner world at all. Mm. And I think, again, it goes back to us just wanting to push through, push it down maybe. Yeah. How so many of us are raised and trained you know, don't feel the depths of your emotion. Sure, maybe feel some of them. Yeah. Um, and I, was, I think that's exactly how I was raised to, to, to an extent. Um, I was never comfortable 
sharing my emotions as a kid. And I, I was a pretty sensitive kid. Um, I was never comfortable with just being myself, with expressing myself, with um, with being human in a lot of ways. I wasn't comfortable with, you know, crying or um, just being vulnerable like that just was not me at all. So I was always very like, I need to just channel it into something better mm-hmm. and to just push it down, don't deal with it. And um, that's what's going to make you better. And true strength is, you know, just keep on, like, just keep on keeping on. Like, that's what strength was to me. Strength was never breaking down. Strength was just, no matter how hard life hit you, you just kept going. And I just thought that's what resilience was and that's what strength was and that's who I needed to be. And so when I couldn't be that person, (laughs) Mm. it really, it really, really threw me for a a loop to say the least. I totally understand that and relate to that. And I think so many people do because when that's our paradigm and then it's broken or it starts to break down, we don't know what to do. Yeah. But I love what you said. I think that's such gold of you weren't comfortable being human. Yeah. (laughs) But now you are, you know what I mean? But that's the work. And that is what so many of us are uncomfortable with. Yeah. Yeah. I, and it's, it's just so funny now I'm so like, free spirited. And I just, I'll say whatever. I'll just, I'm, I am who I am and I'm so comfortable and confident in that. Um, but I was never this person. I was, I just cared so much about what everyone thought. And I cared so much about maintaining this just perfect persona. And I cared so much about achieving. I cared more about achieving and my goals than I did about myself. And man, it's, that's really just no, it's just no way to live at all. And I mean, I get it because as, as a kid, everything I was going through, you know, I, my, my 10 year old brain didn't know how to like figure that out and process it at all. So of course like I shut down, I shut down so, so, so much. And it was just, um, just dealing with a lot of self-hate and a, a lot of um, contempt for myself and um, mistrust for myself and the world around me. And, you know, because I hadn't healed from that, I I grew up and I still had all of those same things. Um, Just lots of low self-worth and low self-esteem and all of those things. Um, And until something came along, um, until I healed from that, um, nothing was going to shift. You know, I was still going to be high-performing and just not really fully alive, you know? Before I got married, I felt like something was wrong because like I was an attractive woman, you know, or girl, I'll say like in college and stuff. And like a lot of guys, I hung out with a lot of guys, like I got along with a lot of guys, but like every time I got into a relationship, I just felt like it was like an obsession. And so I could, I felt like I had to be with them and the jealousy was just like ridiculous. And I didn't know it was wrong at that time, but now looking back, I could see, holy crap. But, you know, um, I, but I did know that there was something wrong there because everyone kept leaving me. Everyone would either cheat on me or pick the other girl. I was never the girl that you stayed with. 
and I didn't know why. Um, and then, you know, getting into my marriage, like I didn't know why he stopped doing the things he used to do. So I always felt like it was me. Mm. So when did something shift in you that you really realized this? So I think it was during my marriage. Uh, I remember specifically like always saying to myself, cause I had a friend who, um, you know, at our age and thirties got cancer and her husband was like amazing and was there throughout the whole thing. And I kept saying to myself, like, he wouldn't be there for me. Mm. He wouldn't be there for me. And that really kind of stuck with me because like, he was never the one to come home and want to be with the kids. He would come home and just lay on the couch and watch TV. You know, he, he wasn't the one, he wasn't empathetic. He wasn't, you know, he was around his family a lot, but he wasn't involved with his family, if that makes sense. Um, I was more involved with his family than he was. So I started to, you know, that really it stuck with me is the whole cancer thing where I knew like if I had gotten really sick because I did get really sick. I actually, um, when I was pregnant with my, with both of my kids, actually I went on bed rest, but with my first one being the first, like it was scary. Um, and I went on bed rest and he didn't help me, you know, and I you still had to clean the house. He didn't take overtime when we were struggling with money. Like it just didn't help. So therefore, you know, that made me feel very insecure, very not being able to trust him, not feeling safe with him. So I definitely knew that there was something wrong with that. It wasn't the way that a marriage should have been. Raw. It wasn't really until I was like too far in. Mm. (laughs) Um, Like there was one occasion I remember and it would have been within the first few months of us dating where I was like this is this is too good to be true Mm. and I know that that can be quite a self-sabotaging thought as well so if you've been through Mm. a lot of difficult relationships you know that thought there that can also create your reality right Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) so I think just like there was this part of me that was like, this is way too good to be true. Like this guy seems way too perfect. Like, and I was questioning it. Mm. Yeah. And then it kind of wasn't until like throughout, like in the middle, well, not even in the middle, probably maybe four months in, we moved in together. And he drove me to and from work. And the reason for that was to make it easy for me. Well, that's what I was told. And it was. It was really, really nice. And then one day when I said that I wanted to drive to work, he got quite... I don't know if angry is the right word, but he didn't like it. Mm. Yeah, he was like, well, why don't you want me to drop you off to work? I don't know if those were the words he said specifically, but I remember there being a lot of resistance about me wanting to have that independence of me driving to work and me being able to do that for myself and spend time by myself. Because I wanted that space to be able to 
reflect and be by myself driving to and from work. And I remember at the time thinking this is a bit, it's a bit strange, but not, didn't think that much more about it. And so I think that was probably the first time that something in my mind went, oh, okay, like, why is this happening? Um, and yeah, it kind of spiraled from there. Um, yeah. And at the start of our relationship, there was, I say the word like incident, but there was some conflict around what he kind of made out to be me making a really big mistake and that from there kind of perpetuated a lot around him isolating me from people, me changing my entire life and um, I thought it was me doing all of these things to try and fix what I'd done when really what I had done wasn't wasn't really bad mm-hmm. that he told me that it was and that I betrayed him and I'd broken all his trust and and so kind of from there like I stopped seeing a whole heap of people I literally deleted almost every single mail from my Facebook friends. Like I literally, like I stopped talking to guys at the gym that we went to like out of fear. And that was all me thinking that that was me trying to fix what I'd apparently done. But, you know, in talking to everyone else or a lot of everyone else, a lot of my friends about it, like what I'd done or so, like what I had done is I'd been speaking to a, I'd say, ex really when him and I had started like seeing each other. We weren't in a relationship and I was still talking to an ex. It was literally the first two weeks of me spending time with this person. So you felt like you were trying to make up for that the whole time in your relationship? Yeah. Yeah. Like the whole time in our relationship. I, yeah. I felt like I was trying to make up for having a conversation or having conversations with this person when I wasn't even in a relationship with this guy and I got told that what I was doing was wrong and I wasn't even in a relationship with him and then he literally told me that I was like such a bad person and I spent that next well I pretty much I would say the next six months trying to trying to make up for it Mm. trying to rebuild that trust so to speak um Yeah, and what it was me, what I thought I was doing was compromising and changing things to make the relationship better um, or fix the relationship 
Um, but, but in doing that, I removed so many parts of me. Did you have a sense of that during that time? No. No. No, not at the time. Because yeah. I think for me it was like I was just so like I want this relationship and how I saw it was like this is going to be forever. So I need to do whatever it is that I can do to make it work. Even if it means me not talking to guys who I've been friends with for years mm-hmm. and and not even giving them an explanation, literally just, you know, like not doing that to make it work, I'll do that. And I did that and, yeah, it, it really wasn't until I – all right, halfway through our relationship, so probably like one and a half years in, like I I was the most depressed that I'd ever been in my life um, and quite had lots of thoughts of suicide. And I'd had depression before a few times during my life. It was never like this. Nor. I think when I was five, um, that gut feeling was um, when I realized something was wrong. Um, and then as a young teenager slash young adult, I realized that like, I didn't have any like male figures. Like I had my grandfather and my uncles, you know, but like no one that would do like dad sort of things with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I realized that like my self-esteem and worth were like wrapped up into not having a dad, you know? Um, so I would constantly think about like how I'm going to be rejected, how I'm going to be abandoned by my loved ones or friends that I make. So I would do a lot of like self-defensive kind of mech. I would put in self-defensive mechanisms in, and I would self-protect myself from getting hurt. And then that's kind of like when I was like, this isn't the way to live. Like I'm not allowing people in, I'm not having joy. So yeah, those would be the two times I think that like really hit me when I was five. And then when I was a young teenager slash young adult, when I was like, Oh, something needs to change. Was there a specific incident that happened when you were a teenager? Um, I think it was more of a general feeling. It was like most of my friends had parents that were not divorced. Um, They all seemed really happy. You know, when I got into college, like there, again, there wasn't like too much divorce with the parent, like with the kids that I hung out with. Some parents were separated um, and they just seemed well off, you know, like, in the sense of like personality wise, like stability wise. And like, I would be like watching Nemo. I I cried because I was like, his father is missing, you know? And I was like 
crying. And then I'm like, like, why am I so emotional? You know? Um, and so like little things like that would like watching fathers or like even parents play like as a complete family looking from the outside, it seems so picture perfect, you know? And I was just like, there's something wrong with me. Like I'm too emotional over something that is so benign, you know, this is normal for people. Like I shouldn't be crying over this. And like, there was that story again, I shouldn't, you know, and the cognitive distortions that followed it. I can, and that's all retro reflective, you know, of me looking back and saying, oh, that's what I was doing. Didn't recognize it when I was in the midst of it. So, but yeah, so there wasn't any like particular incidents. It was just like little things that just added up to the storyline. Nikki. The first time that I knew that something was really, really wrong was in Japan in 2013. We were in Osaka and we were on a, it was about a five-week trip to travel, to enjoy with our son, who at the time was 17 months old. This was 2013, as I said. And we had rented a car and we were going to drive, we were about to drive to an, I think it was an Airbnb or a VRBO that we had rented. So a house that we had rented in the middle of nowhere in Japan. And I was the navigator and my ex-husband was driving and our rental car There was something about our GPS and our rental car that I think everything that you could see on the screen was in Japanese. So (laughs) the voice might have been speaking to us in English, but everything that you could see was in Japanese. And so in order to navigate, I would look, I would listen to the car GPS, but at the same time I had my phone that where like Google maps was pulled up. And so you know how, when you're, when you're navigating, you have that dot that shows you where your car is, right. It shows you yep. where you are. Yep. So we pull out of the rental car place. And like I said, you know, we're in this large city in Japan. And as I was starting to navigate us to the place we were supposed to be going, the dot of the car wasn't, wasn't keeping up with where we were. So I couldn't tell whether we were making progress in the right direction or where exactly we were because the dot wasn't moving. It was sort of caught up. And so while we were about to get on the highway, like this super highway, <laughs> I couldn't tell I couldn't tell which ramp to, to get on. I couldn't tell which one. And so my GPSs were sort of failing me. So I was just looking at the signs of the highway. Anyway, we got on the highway and then the dot on my phone caught up so I could see where we were going and I could see that we were going in the wrong direction on the highway. (laughs) And so it was an error of navigation. It was like anybody else could have made this error. It really wasn't that big of a deal. But my ex-husband, he he got really upset and he, he... lit into me verbally. He just went after me and saying things like, basically called me stupid and was saying, I don't understand how you could have made this mistake and you could have messed up like this. Went 
after me verbally. It was like a lashing. Mm. And our son was awake in the back of the car. Our 17-month-old son was awake in the back of the car. And I felt bad, sure. I was like, okay, my bad. Yeah, yeah. And I sort of took responsibility. And I was like, yep, God is going on the wrong, in the wrong direction on a big highway in Japan. But like, it could have been funny, right? Right. It could have been funny. It could have been silly. It could have been like, oh, man. And anybody could have made that mistake. And so I knew that I hadn't, quote, done anything wrong, right? It was like such an innocent and such an understandable moment. You almost can't even really like call it a mistake. (laughs) Like I didn't have the full tools to even know which way to go. So I made a call. And the way that he talked to me was so completely unacceptable according to the way that I had been raised, according to the way anyone in my life had ever talked to me and ever addressed me before. And I remember being in total shock at the time and not saying anything and continuing the drive and kind of putting myself on autopilot because I knew that or I felt that what was most important at the time was to troubleshoot, get on the highway going the right way, and get ourselves to a place where, where I could have a minute and where we could settle into our house and kind of get back to a place where I was in equilibrium and feeling safer. But the next day, I had a conversation with my ex-husband actually wasn't really a conversation. It was more me. It was more of a monologue. It was more me saying to him, look, you must never speak to me that way again. And I also knew and communicated to him that this was marriage threatening behavior. So that's Mm -hmm. why I say like, I knew that something was really, really wrong. And I also communicated to him that something was really, really wrong. And I literally said, I wasn't raised to be spoken to like this. And in my mind and in my heart, one of the things that made this different, because we had gotten into, into, we had fought a whole bunch over the years. Mm. Like I said, by this time, we had been married for eight years and we had been together for 10. And there had been all kinds of conflict. And there was a level of conflict that I was pretty much always uncomfortable with in our relationship. But this was something different. And one of the things that was different about it was that my son witnessed it. Mm. And there was something about that and events that happened afterward that whenever one or later both of our children witnessed what was going on between us and witnessed him treating me in a way that was in my estimation wrong and just completely not okay it magnified the wrongness of it so much for me and it brought me shame and it brought me so much anger that I knew it had to stop I knew that I couldn't raise my son first and then later my daughter our son and our daughter 
I could not stand by and raise two children to witness behavior like this and a dynamic like this. Mm. Which I think is so important for women, especially moms, to hear that feel lost and confused in those moments, you know, because I think that's such strength that you found in that moment to say, I have to be a better mother than this. Like that's yes. powerful. Yes. And what you say, Carrie, about confusion is really important because there was so much confusion involved in the process for me of coming eventually to the conclusion that A, something was really wrong and B, something had to change because it's so confusing and it was so confusing for me and I know I'm not alone in this. To be in a completely committed relationship, to be in a marriage, and for me to be with a person who, who on the one hand, told me all the time that he loved me, he would, he, would, he would rave about me and brag about me to our friends, and I, could, you know, I would hear him sort of do it on the phone and talk about stuff that we did together and talk about maybe accomplishments that I had had or just me being really awesome. Not really in an ostentatious way, but in a way that really came across as genuine. Mm -hmm. And so on the one hand, I felt solid in him kind of having, you know, loving me and having an overall positive attitude about me. But the confusing, that made it all the more confusing when the smaller difficult behaviors would happen. Like like he would be very critical of me in tiny ways and small ways and medium ways and then really big and major ways that were painful. And so it was really hard and confusing for me to reconcile one with the other. Mm. And I know that the kind of analogy or image of Jekyll and Hyde comes up a lot with with people who are in relationships that they realize are toxic. And I don't really have a better analogy because everybody kind of knows what you're talking about, where there are these kind of, everyone has multiple sides to their personality, but when it comes to framing when it comes to kind of trying to frame and explain the confusion of being in a, of being in this kind of relationship, there really are these kind of two sides. Uh, there were two sides to his personality, and they were so different, and they were so contradictory, and it it would put me in this state of confusion that I would want to exit, right? I would want to get out of that, out of that sort of confusion. And so I would want to exit it and be kind of on one side, like, okay, we're okay. I'm okay. He's okay. Versus we're not okay. Right. Because when you're married to somebody, that's the conclusion you want to keep coming to, right? You want to keep coming to the conclusion that everything's okay and everything's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. And that makes sense. Right. I mean, it makes sense from the standpoint of preserving 
a marriage and preserving a partnership, but it also makes sense once you have a child. It's so, it really is so different because once you have a child, once we had a child, I'll speak for myself, my desire and, and inclination and instinct, honestly, you know, preservation of the species and of the family, mm-hmm. my instinct was to even st- more strongly to make sure that everything was okay and that everything was going to be okay and that we were a happy, we were a happy family and we we're gonna, going to continue to be a happy family. And mm-hmm. we had already started about, ha- started talking about having another child. And so I wanted so badly more than anything for things to be okay. Mm. And I think that, so desperately we want that regardless of the situation sometimes, right? And coming back to the place of knowing that we can't change anyone else is really, really hard work. Definitely. And when it's impacting you so dramatically, right? When this person is Jekyll one day, Hyde the next. You don't know what kind of behavior you're going to walk into and you just want everything to be okay. That's just a a confusing place to be, a hard place to be. How did you find yourself navigating that? Well, one of the ways that I navigated it was to be in therapy. That was one way that I navigated the confusion. Definitely. So I, I confided in my therapist the most. There were maybe a couple of friends who I would talk to when I was confused, but for the most part, it was my therapist. So I have seen, um, I've seen the same therapist since for the last eight years, I actually just saw her for the last time before moving to LA. (laughs) And so I would process it with her. I would write in my journal sometimes, although it's interesting to note that I almost completely stopped writing in a journal after writing in a journal for my entire life. Since really before I could even write, I would like draw pictures of the same horse over and over again in my journal when I was little. When, when my ex-husband and I moved in together, I almost completely stopped writing in a journal, hmm. which is kind of fascinating. And I think that I felt that I didn't have kind of the same level of privacy. And it wasn't because he ever said, I want to look in your journal. It wasn't that at all. I didn't, I, I didn't have like a direct suspicion that he was going to read what I wrote. But anyway, that's kind of a different topic. But sometimes I would write about what was going on. And then I would rationalize. Mm. I would rationalize. And also when we would when we would have conflict, he would he would very often turn the argument and the conversation around so that I was at fault when I would object to one of his behaviors or something he had said or something he had did, he had done. He would often say something like, you're so defensive. You got to stop being so defensive. Or he would flip things around 
And this is really common of people in toxic relationships. So that it was my fault somehow pretty much every single time, unless I could literally objectively prove that there was something that he had done or some kind of mistake or something that had happened. If I could objectively prove that, that he was, quote, to blame, then he would take the responsibility. But if it was something subjective, like, boy, I really felt like you were being a jerk when, or um, something that was debatable, he would end up kind of turning it around such that I would, such that it was that I was messing up somehow or that it was really my issue. And so I remember I would work a lot with my therapist and just on my own in order to have a tougher skin, be Mm -hmm. less defensive, not take things personally, realize that it, he was simply expressing himself about something that he thought was subpar that I had done or whatever, and that it was up to me to deal and to Mm -hmm. sort of take the criticism and make the change. So that's pretty much how I tended to, to deal with it. And the other way was, oh, another way that I dealt with it was to capitulate, was to, to concede. was to agree when I didn't agree or go along with his preference in order to kind of preserve harmony in the shorter term. And over time, that really was harmful and damaging to me and also harmful and damaging to our relationship. Honestly, I take responsibility for that because the entire time I knew this guy, I was an adult. Hmm. So I do take responsibility for the fact, the reality that I was giving my power away and I was yielding to him much more than was healthy for me. But I also want to point out that one of the reasons that we fought as much as we did was because I did object and I did say, ouch. So, Mm -hmm. so there were plenty of times when I would, when I would, when I would object and every now and then we would have what I would call a come to Jesus talk where I would say, Hey, something's got to change. I would say, you, you've really been riding me a lot lately. You've been really hard on me. Um, you know, I feel micromanaged and kind of, we need a reset here. And it would be a conversation where I would be crying and it just was a come to Jesus thing. And usually by the next day, he would say, you're right. I've been too hard on you. And he would back off. Mm. And at the beginning of our relationship, what happened was the amount of time between come to Jesus talks was pretty big for the first few years, you know? So maybe like in year one, there was one of those conversations. And then in year two, there was one of those conversations. And then in year three, there might've been two of them. And then in year four, there might've been three until Mm. those types of situations that would prompt those come to Jesus conversations were coming up um, more and more often. 
And by the time we got divorced, I mean, it was just like, I was just in this like constant state of misery and, and activation. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed getting such a privileged chance to talk with these five women who are brave and courageous for sharing their stories with us, for being vulnerable and honest about where they have been on their journey so far. So I hope that what you'll take away from this episode is that it's so critical and important that we learn to listen that we find the space to listen to ourselves, that our bodies, our minds, our whole beings are capable of telling us and guiding us of knowing if something's wrong. And that that still small voice, what I view as our intuition, I also call our inner knowing that just is aware of what is right for us and what is not that it's so worth paying attention to and that if you feel like you can't hear it and it's not there, that that's okay too. That that's where the magic gets to begin. You get to do the work to tune into your intuition, to figure out what in the world that even means if this sounds like gibberish to you. So I hope you'll take courage and strengthen the fact that every journey is different, that all five women had very different stories around how they knew something was really wrong and what that looks like. So if you're in a place of self-doubt or criticism or questioning, that that's okay, that that is a part of your story and that there is hope when you start to listen And you start to get the support and the tools that you need to trust yourself, to know that you are capable of so much more than you ever imagined. So thanks for tuning in today. I can't wait for you to hear what is to come in the unfolding of these five extremely brave women. Thank you so much for listening to the Set Yourself Free podcast. I'm so grateful you are here supporting me and these incredibly brave guests. If you could do me a favor and take one minute to share this episode with someone that needs to hear it, I would be so grateful. And if you are willing, please leave us a review. Each month, I will be choosing a reviewer to give a free session to as a thank you for listening to this podcast. One thing I know for certain is that shame can only grow in secret. I'm more encouraged than you could possibly know by those that are willing to speak up and help all of us know that we are not alone. So don't forget, head on over to my website at setyourselffreellc.com, grab your free journal, and you can also book a free call with me to see if we are a great fit in supporting your journey to setting yourself free. Thanks again, and we will see you next week.